Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. And welcome to episode two of Midwest March. Madness. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, I definitely think it's, I believe I did first last time so i think it's you yep hang on i don't know how i'm having allergies in february this is ridiculous like it's still icy and snowy here and the wind is blowing really hard today but my allergies should not be kicking in right now it's back and forth down here it'll be really cold like almost to where you think the snow is gonna come and then, like, the next day it'll be in the 70s, and you're sweating, and then it just keeps going back and forth, and I'm dying. <laughs> like, I'm dying. Yeah, just a steady temperature is good. I'm good with that. Like, it can be hot if it stays hot, but I don't like what we deal a lot with here, that is, you'll have a 30-degree temperature swing between morning and afternoon, like, late afternoon in the summertime that drives me crazy be like it's 50 degrees when you leave your house and then it's (laughs) 80 or something like that as you're in the middle of your day continuing to do things it's like how many layers do i have to wear (laughs) (laughs) all right today i'm doing one um, based in iowa this is the gruesome murder of the moore family better known as the Velisca Axe Murders. The Velisca House has been investigated by Ghost Adventures and other paranormal investigator shows or episodes on YouTube, like BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural, Exploring with Josh, Sam and Colby, um, and Bailey Sarian has talked about it. The list keeps going. And I think I've seen the house investigated at least four or five times. Uh, (laughs) So that's kind of how I... I knew about it, and so I'm sorry if you've heard this before, because it'll just be something that you've heard probably many times. <laughs> On June 10th, 1912, just after midnight, and you can tell I'm <laughs> my allergies are bad because I feel like my nose is clogged, so I'm so sorry <laughs> to anyone listening to this. I feel like I'm talking with, I'll, I'll just talk like this, just after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sick of this weather. All right, let me try that again. On June 10th, 1912, just after midnight, a stranger with an axe entered the back door of a two-story timber house in the little town of Villisca, Iowa. The door was not locked, and the intruder was able to enter silently and close the door behind him. The small town of about 2000 did not worry about that kind of crime at the time. The intruder started by lighting a lamp. He then went past all of the children's bedrooms, upstairs to the room of 43-year-old Joe Moore and his wife Sarah, as they lay in their bed sleeping. Both were struck in the head with an axe, which was raised so high above his head that it gouged the ceiling. Joe's own axe was thought to be used, probably taken from where it had been left in the coal shed. Leaving the couple dead or dying, the killer went to the next room and used the axe to kill the four more children as they slept. There's no evidence that Herman, 11, Catherine, 10, Boyd, 7, or Paul, 5, woke before they died. Catherine's two friends, 
Lena and Ina Stillinger, ages 12 and 9, slept downstairs. The killer then descended the stairs and killed the Stillinger girls. After killing everyone in the house, the man went back upstairs and smashed the heads of all six Moors with the axe, striking Joe alone an estimated 30 times, and left the faces of all six members of the family unrecognizable. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's horrific. He then pulled the blankets up to cover Joe and Sarah's bodies, put a gauze undershirt over Herman's face and a dress over Catherine's. He covered Boyd and Paul as well, and finally went back downstairs to do the same to the girls uh, down there before going around the house and hanging cloths over every mirror and piece of glass. Totally bizarre. Well, they they like to say, um, at least from what I've heard, when you have open um, mirrors and there's a death in front of them or a death around the mirror, their souls will get trapped in there. I've heard that. And cause like hauntings. So I'm wondering if that's part of his reasoning for covering it. But like you should have done that beforehand because... It's such an odd action to take. Yeah. The like I don't know what that says about them mentally cuz to do all that in the first place you're not there and then to take these additional steps um cuz also strange at some point the killer also took a 2 pound slab of bacon from the ice box wrapped it in a towel and left it on the floor of the downstairs bedroom close to a short piece of keychain that did not belong to the Moors. So it's just leaving for, like further Weird. evidence around why take bacon out. I, I don't understand. Yeah. There's also evidence that he stayed in the house for a while since he filled the bowl with water to wash himself. Sometime before 5 a.m. on that Sunday morning, he put the lamp at the top of the stairs and left the house, locking the doors behind him. He also took the house keys. So maybe like a weird memento from that? I Yeah, I don't understand you know, locking after you leave. The moors were not discovered until several hours later when a neighbor, worried by the silence in the normally energetic house, called Joe's brother Ross and asked him to investigate. Ross went in through the front door, but barely looked in the house before he came out again, calling for Velisca's marshal, Hank Horton. And takes me off so much because what happened next destroyed any hope of gathering useful evidence from the crime scene. Horton brought along doctors J. Clark Cooper and Edgar Huff and Wesley Ewing, the minister of the Moore's Presbyterian congregation. I, I don't get bringing him in. Um, no, it's a crime scene. It's an open investigation. You don't bring outside people into yeah, it. Yeah, but 1912. <laughs> No DNA evidence, anything like that. So True. Next to arrive were the county coroner, L.A. Lindquist, and a third doctor, F.S. Williams, who was the first to actually examine the bodies and estimate a time of death. When a shaken Dr. Williams emerged, he told the growing crowd outside, Don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life. However... Many ignored the advice, and no one stopped the as many as a hundred curious neighbors and townspeople as they walked through the house, leaving fingerprints, and in one case, even removing fragments of Joe Moore's skull as a keepsake. 
Oh my god. Like, what the actual fuck was wrong with people during this time period? It's the the urge to find keepsakes, like with the Bender family, like people just wanting to go in and take take things. I like more morbid for the time, especially. Like weird weird period in history. Yeah. Who I'm I'm sorry, I'm just a little dumbfounded. Right? Uh, like, who? like I'm just sitting here in silence because I can't even compute. What what would make anybody see a man who has been murdered and mutilated and think, I'm gonna take a piece of their skull? Like, what the fuck? And why did they let all these people just traipse through the home? Yeah. Like, to begin with. Nobody's just don't go in there, guys. Meanwhile, nobody's gonna like, stop you're them. the police. Don't allow them in. Yeah. Just the like the family. Just thinking of the family being dead in their beds along with these two other girls who were staying with them that night. I can't imagine just wanting to go, oh yeah, I wanna walk into a crime scene. Having no involvement just as a spectator. Just wanting to oh go in and God. look at dead bodies. I I don't understand it. A search of the surrounding countryside for a transient killer failed to find any likely suspect, but there was no sign you know, there was no sign of the murderer's whereabouts, so they just managed to get out without leaving a trace. Well, they might have left a trace. Well, but, might have. You know. <laughs> it was ruined. Sorry. <laughs> ruined now. Yeah. He might have went back into his own home nearby or had a head start of up to five hours in a town where nearly 30 trains went through every day. Bloodhounds were tried without success, and there was little for the people in the town to do other than, you know, talk about it, gossip and lock their doors. By sundown, apparently this is strange detail, uh, by sundown, there were no dogs left to buy. So apparently everyone was like home security. They were just gathering dogs. <laughs> you couldn't get a dog. Um, one suspect was Frank Jones, a local businessman and state senator who was also a prominent member of Velisca's Methodist Church. Edgar Epperly, a leading authority on the murders, reported that the town quickly split among religious lines, with the Methodists proclaiming Jones's innocence and the Moore's Presbyterian congregation convinced of his guilt. Jones was never formally charged with any involvement in the murders, but he became the subject of a grand jury investigation, which destroyed his political career. Many townspeople thought he used his influence to have the case against him overridden. There were at least two reasons to believe Jones hated Joe Moore. First, Moore had worked for him for seven years, becoming the star salesman of Jones's farm equipment business. But Moore left in 1907, uh, possibly because of his boss's hours of 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week, and set himself up as a rival, taking the John Deere account with him. But I would also leave if someone expected me to work from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Who's buying tractors at, you know, even nine o'clock at night? Unnecessary. 
He was also believed to have slept with Jones's daughter-in-law, whose affairs were well known in town thanks to her habit of arranging hookups over the phone when all calls had to be connected through an operator. So who were those operators were knew what was going on in town, apparently. By 1912, the relationship between Jones and Moore was so cold that they would cross the street to avoid each other, which was obvious to everyone in a small town. <laughs> Not many in Villesca believe Jones could have swung the axe himself since he was 57 in 1912, but some thought he was capable of paying someone else to take out more in his family. James Wilkerson, an agent of the Burns Detective Agency, announced in 1916 that Jones had hired a killer by the name of William Mansfield to murder Moore. Wilkerson helped derail Jones's re-election to the state Senate and eventually succeeded in having a grand jury convened to consider the evidence he had gathered. Wilkerson was also able to show that Mansfield had the right sort of background for the job because in 1914, he was the chief suspect in the axe murders of his wife, her parents, and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. However, at the time, Mansfield had an alibi for the Velisca killings. Payroll records showed that he had been working in Illinois at the time of the murders, and he was released for lack of evidence. However, many locals, including Ross Moore and Joe Stillinger, father of the two Stillinger girls, still believed in Jones's guilt. Another suspect was Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. He was an English immigrant, a preacher, and a known sexual deviant with mental problems. Kelly had been in the town on the night of the murders and admitted he had left on a dawn train just before the bodies were discovered. There were things about Kelly that made him seem an unlikely suspect. He was only about five foot two and weighed 119 pounds. He was a oh, wow. tiny, tiny pervert. <laughs> <laughs> However, he was left-handed and coroner Linquist had determined from an examination of blood splatters in the murder house that the killer was probably left-handed. Kelly was supposedly obsessed with sex and had been caught looking into the windows in Villisca two days before the murders. In 1914, while living in Winter, South Dakota, he would he advertised for a girl stenographer to do confidential work. Those are air quotes. Confidential work. An ad placed in the Omaha World Herald specified that the candidate must be willing to pose as model. When a young woman named Jasmine Hodgson responded, she received a letter described by a judge as so obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. <laughs> In one of the milder demands, Kelly told Hodgson that she would be required to type in the nude. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's not not great for the tiny pervert. <laughs> tiny pervert is like not my favorite <laughs> there were links between Lynn Kelly and the Moore family Kelly had attended the children's day service held at Velisca's Presbyterian Church on the evening of the murders 
The service was organized by Sarah Moore, and her children, along with Lena and Enos Dillinger, played prominent parts. Many in Villisca believed Kelly saw the family in the church and became obsessed with them. The idea that the killer waited for the Moors to go to sleep was supported by some evidence. Lindquist's investigation revealed a depression in some bales of hay stored in the family barn and a knot hole that the murderer could have used to watch the house. So they could have like sat on the bale of hay and watched everybody until they went to sleep. Lena Stillinger had been found wearing no underwear and with her nightdress up past her waist, which suggested a sexual motive, but doctors found no evidence of sexual assault. So someone just creeping. Yeah. Still disgusting. Yeah. It's a child. Um, in 1917, another grand jury assembled to hear the evidence linking Kelly with Lena's murder. The case against Kelly seemed compelling because he had sent bloody clothing to the laundry in nearby Macedonia, and an elderly couple recalled seeing the preacher when he left from a 5.19 a.m. train from Villisca the morning of the murders. It was also found that Kelly returned to Villisca a week later and had shown interest in the murders, even posing as a Scotland Yard detective to get a tour of the Moore house. Wow. Weird and creepy. Kelly was arrested in 1917 and was repeatedly interrogated, even eventually signing a confession to the murder where he said, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe, went into the house and killed them. He later recanted and the couple who claimed to have spoken to him on the morning after the murders changed their story. With little left of time to the murders, the first grand jury to hear Kelly's case hung 11 to 1 in favor of refusing to indict him, and a second panel freed him. Some of the strongest evidence that both Jones and Kelly were probably innocent came from other communities in the Midwest, where in 1911 and 1912, a bizarre chain of axe murders seemed to suggest a transient serial killer was at work. There's actually a book called The Man from the Train by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. Um, that's about the string of axe murders near, near railroads between 1898 and 1912. And it's a it's an interesting read if you like that kind of thing. Um, researcher Beth Klingensmith has suggested that as many as 10 incidents that occurred close to railways... Um, but in locations as far as Rainier, Washington, in Monmouth, Illinois, might form part of the chain. And in several cases, there are striking similarities to the Villisca crime. The pattern was first pointed out in 1913 by Special Agent Matthew McClary of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, uh, which was basically the start of the FBI before it was the FBI. It began with the murder of a family of six in Colorado Springs in September of 1911 and continued with two incidents in Monmouth, where the murder weapon was a, a pipe, and in Ellsworth, Kansas. In Paola, Kansas, someone murdered Roland Hudson and his wife just four days before the killings in Villisca. In December 1912, Mary Wilson and her daughter, Georgia Moore, were murdered in Columbia, Missouri. 
McClory theorized that Henry Lee Moore, Georgia's son and a convict with a history of violence, was responsible for everything. However, now Moore is rarely considered a good suspect. While he was released from a reformatory in Kansas shortly before the axe murders began and arrested in Jefferson City, Missouri shortly after they ended um, and eventually convicted of the Columbia murders, his motive was greed more than anything else. He had planned to get the deeds to his family house, and it's rare for a wandering serial killer to return home and kill his own family. Analysis of the sequence of murders, as well as others that McClary did not consider, showed some strong comparisons. The use of an axe in almost every case wasn't necessarily remarkable, because while there was an unusual concentration of axe killings in the Midwest at the time, Almost every family in rural areas owned an axe and often left it lying in their yard, making it a weapon of convenience. Similarly, the fact that the victims were killed while asleep in their beds was likely because of the choice of weapon. However, other similarities are harder to explain. In eight of the ten cases, the murder weapon was found at the scene of the crime. In as many as seven, there was a railway line nearby. In three including Velisca, the murders took place on a Sunday night. Four of the cases, Paolo, Velisca, Rainier, and Mount Pleasant, Iowa, had killers who covered their victims' faces. Three murders washed themselves at the scene, and at least five of the killers had lingered in the murder house. Two other homes had been lit by lamps in which the chimney had been laid aside and the wick bent down, just like at Velisca. And whether or not the murders were actually connected is still a mystery. Some evidence fits patterns, but some don't. Um, for example, how could a stranger to Velisca have found Joe and Sarah Moore's bedroom by low lamplight, you know, walking by all the children's rooms until the adults were safely dead? Like, they, they would have had to have watched the house. They would have had to have known where everyone's bedrooms were. However, the use of the flat of the axe blade for the fatal initial blows suggests the murder had previous experience. The Paola murders also show similarities with Velisca aside from the killer's use of an adapted lamp. In both cases, odd incidents occurred the same night, which suggests the killer may have attempted to strike twice. In Velisca at 2.10 a.m. on the night of the murders, Zinia Delaney heard strange footsteps coming up the stairs and someone tried to open her locked door. So it was lucky her door was locked. In Paola, a second family was woken in the night by a sound that turned out to be a lamp chimney falling to the floor. Members of the house got up in time to see an unknown man escaping through a window. <laughs> so, you know still a mystery they still don't know who did it there's lots of theories obviously with all this but it's still unknown who actually killed the family and um you know you can actually stay in the Velisca axe murder house if you wanted to you could do day tours or they also do an overnight tour <laughs> wow it's 428 dollars for a group of six you know, up to six if you're interested, which I'm not. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, not so much. 
Nope. Wow. Well, my story today is pretty well known. It's newer in the 2000s, early 2000s. So if you've heard of it, I'm sorry, but I wanted to at least go into it because this this case is kind of stuck with me for a while and so I'm glad to finally be able to look into it further. But this is uh Bobby Joe Stinnett was born on December 4, 1981 and graduated from Nodaway High School in Graham, Missouri in 2000. Stinnett and her husband Zeb ran a dog breeding business from their home in Skidmore, Missouri. Now, Lisa Marie Montgomery was born February 27, 1968, and she resided in Melbourne, Kansas at the time of Bobby's murder. Lisa's mother's alcohol addiction led to her being born with permanent brain damage. She was raised within a home that was physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive and was allegedly raped by her stepfather and his friends and beaten starting at age 11. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Lisa then turned to drinking as a way to escape the reality of her life. Uh, When she was 14, her mother uncovered the abuse and responded by threatening Lisa with a gun. What? The fuck? Precisely. At age 18, she got married in hopes that it would be her way out. But unfortunately, her first and second marriages resulted in further abuse before undergoing tubal ligation. Remember that. Oh. In 1990, Lisa had four children. She falsely claimed to be pregnant, though, several times after the procedure, according to her first and second husbands. Hmm. Bobby Joe and Lisa met through dog show events and had continued their talks in an online rat terrier chat room called Ratter Chatter. <laughs> That's probably the only funny part of this story. <laughs> wow. I, that got me a giggle. Everything else was... Terrible. Horrific. Yes. Bobby Joe was pregnant. And Lisa told her she was pregnant as well. But again, she had had tubal ligation in 1990. Bitch, how? (laughs) But this led the two women to continue their chat online and exchanging emails about their pregnancies. I don't like Um, where this is going. (laughs) No, no. It's where you think it's going. Oh. On the afternoon of December 16. 2004, Becky Harper, Bobby Joe's mother, goes to visit her and finds the door unlocked, which is fairly common in the town as the population was around 250. Becky sensed something was off when she wasn't being greeted at the door by her daughter, so she let herself in and found poor Bobby Joe on the dining room floor in a pool of her own blood, and the baby she was eight months pregnant with was missing. No. (laughs) Cut from her womb. Yep, that's where I thought it was going. No. Yeah. Harper immediately called the police and described her daughter's state as appearing as if her stomach had exploded. Oh, Oh, Which makes me cringe so hard. Yeah. Paramedics tried and were unsuccessful at reviving Stinnett, and she was pronounced dead at the hospital. Lisa, on the other hand, had allegedly called her husband Kevin that same day around 5.15 p.m., stating that on a shopping trip to Topeka, she had gone into labor and given birth. What? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. 
just surprise uh baby yeah baby baby i just i just had a baby today i'm on my way home i mean i've i've seen that show i didn't know i was pregnant but it's not i have right i was when i was looking online i didn't i didn't see this part but i do remember like when watching things on this on tv it was very strange like how she was like oh yeah i gave birth i'm we're, we're on our way home like nothing no hospital like two hours later <laughs> yeah you're walk you're you're on your way home with your baby that's not how that that works no at all no but i digress on december 17 the following day police arrested lisa at her farmhouse in melvin melvern kansas a witness would later report that on the morning before her arrest she took the infant, her husband, and two teenage sons to a restaurant for breakfast. What that had to do with any of this, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know either. They threw that in there and I was like, I mean, okay. <laughs> Just to show her... Leaving with the baby? Her at, at How she was acting at the time? I guess. Like, it's fine. I can be out after committing murder and stealing a baby the next day. Like, it's fine. Right. Police initially went to Lisa's after tracing online communications to her IP address and were hoping to interview her as a witness. But when they arrived, they found a car matching the description of the one at the crime scene. Shocker. And upon entering, they found her holding the infant and watching TV. She was arrested an hour later after her story fell apart and she confessed. The kidnapped newborn, whom she claimed as her own, was recovered and soon placed in her father's custody. There had been an Amber Alert in place, but it had initially been denied, as it's never been used in an unborn child's case before, which meant hmm. there was no description of the child at all. Oh, yeah. That's true. Nobody's seen the baby. Nobody knows the weight, the length, like, hair color, eye color. Like, <laughs> there's just a baby missing. It's like, if a... If a suspicious baby suddenly appears right could be that one. Oh, weird exactly eventually the intervention uh after the intervention by congressman sam graves the alert was placed though they did do dna testing as well which um confirmed the baby did in fact belong to bobby Jostinet. at the time of her arrest it was speculated by whom i'm not sure that Lisa's motivation stemmed from a miscarriage she may have su suffered and subsequently kept from her family, but she had had tubal ligation. Yeah. So I don't know why anybody would have thought that. Uh, further possibilities surrounding her motive were raised following speculation that her former husband planned to reveal she had lied about being pregnant in an effort to get custody of her children. It was deduced that Lisa needed to produce a baby to counter this charge of habitual lying about pregnancy. Yeah. Which, I mean. They can but... still DNA test. And the baby had no birth certificate. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Lisa Marie Montgomery was charged with the federal offense of kidnapping resulting in death. A crime established by the Federal Kidnapping Act of 1932. At a pretrial hearing, a neuropsychologist testified that has head injuries which Lisa sustained some years before, could have damaged the part of her brain that controls aggression. During her uh, trial in federal court, her defense attorneys, led by Frederick Ducart, asserted that she had, and I try to get this right, 
Pseudosiasis, a mental condition that causes a woman to falsely believe she is pregnant and exhibit outward signs of pregnancy. Ducart attempted to follow this line of defense only one week before the trial began, after being forced to abandon the contradictory argument that Bobby Joe was murdered by Lisa's brother, Tommy, who had an alibi. <laughs> so why would you say your brother did it? Yeah. It just doesn't... It's all crazy to me. As a result, Lisa's family refused to cooperate with Ducart and described her background to the jury. Dr. V.S. Ramachandran and M.D. William Logan gave expert testimony that Montgomery had pseudosiasis in addition to depression, borderline personality disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Ramachandran testified that Montgomery's stories about her actions fluctuated because of her delusional state and that she was unable to dictate the nature and quality of her acts. Both federal prosecutor Roseanne Ketchmark and the uh, opposing expert witness, forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz, strongly disagreed with the diagnosis of pseudosiasis. On October 22, 2007, jurors found Lisa Montgomery guilty, rejecting the defense claim that she was delusional. On October 26, the jury recommended the death penalty. And on April 4, 2008, Judge Gary A. Fenner sentenced Lisa to death. Ducart's pseudosiasis defense, Lisa's past trauma, and separate diagnosis of mental illnesses were not fully revealed until after her conviction. Oh. And this led critics to argue that Ducart provided an incompetent legal defense. Judge Fenner required Ducart to be cross-examined in November of 2016, and Ducart rejected all criticism and defended his conduct. During her appeals, Lisa's lawyers argue that she technically did not commit the crime of kidnapping resulting in death, claiming that Victoria Jo Stinnett, the baby, was not considered a person until she was removed from her mother's womb. Accordingly, Bobby Jo had died beforehand, and the crime was death resulting in kidnapping. Instead, the claim was obviously dismissed, with the court saying that Lisa needed to kill Bobby regardless yeah, in order to complete the kidnapping. So it doesn't matter which, like, come on now. Yeah, it doesn't matter the order. She was still murdering her. Anyway, it's still murder. Right. On January 13, 2021, Lisa Marie Montgomery was executed by lethal injection at the United States Penitentiary in Terhout, Indiana. When Lisa was asked if she had any last words, she replied simply, no. Oh, all right then. Yep. Lisa became the first female federal prisoner executed in 67 years. The first woman executed in the U.S. since Kelly Gissendanner in 2015. And the first person executed in the U.S. in 2021. Only three other women have been executed by the U.S. federal government. Mary Surratt in 1865 by hanging. Ethel Rosenberg in 1953 by electric chair and Bonnie Heady also in 1953 by gas chamber. So the federal government is usually not the ones doing these, but they did. I found this on Wikipedia and an article on a little bit human. It was pretty, 
pretty gruesome. I remember hearing about that in the news and on TV shows like Discovery or, you know, whatever they did and ID. Ugh. Wow. Oh, yeah. I forgot to say the source for mine, too. Just <laughs> Smithsonian Magazine, Wikipedia, and the Valeska Axe Murder House website. So, yeah, we need some good news after those ones today. Yeah. Um, uh, mine is my baby boy just had his eighth birthday. Yay! He wanted donuts instead of cake. <laughs> which I can appreciate because I also love donuts. Um, and then more like worldwide news. That's good news. A uh, 23-year-old named Miriam Payne just solo rode 3,000 miles across the Atlantic and set a female race record. She did it in 59 days, 16 hours, and 36 minutes. She raised money for the East Yorkshire charity Wellbeing of Women and Mind and raised 13,000 pounds, which is about $14,200 US. Um, she said she got a burst of energy at the end when she could hear her friends and family yelling for her as they waited at her finishing spot. Nice. That is a little bit of good news. Congratulations, Miriam Payne. Yeah, we needed a little bit of a, a pick-me-up after the, yeah. after these, for sure. I know, right? Uh, definitely brutal today. Brutal. Yeah. Not uh, not good ones. Especially when, like, I hate doing these stories where there's no there's no ending to it where there's like right no, no nobody's person been caught. that you could say this is who did it and this is what happened to them and yeah i don't i don't like those ones where there's no actual ending yeah and this one just made me ill writing the script for it the entire time i was like oh god yeah so brutal there were some shows that i've seen like uh criminal mind type or like those those crime shows where some woman has had her baby taken like that. It's crazy. Well, thank you for listening today, everybody. Be safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.